Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Uh, Last week, or really two weeks ago, we started a two-week mini-series finishing up Acts chapter 1, and uh, it's called How to Make Key Life Decisions. So life as we talked about, and as you know, it's just a series of decisions, one decision after another, after another, after another. And most of us want to make the best possible decisions that we can, and the more important that those decisions are, the more impact that they can have, probably the more that we stress about them, the more more that we really maybe overthink them a little bit. And so it would help us if we maybe had some keys from Scripture on how to make the best possible key life decisions. So what's cool about this is this is not just, you know, Stephen's four steps on how to do this. Okay, that's not what's going on. We're looking straight from the second half of Acts chapter 1 at a pivotal time in the church where the apostles are gathered together and they discover through being together they've got an important decision to make that's going to impact them for months and years to come as they're establishing this brand new movement called the church. So we're taking uh, two weeks now, the second week today, to look at four keys from Acts chapter 1 that we can take to help us make our own key life decisions. We'll look at the last two today, but let's do a quick recap of the first two just so we're all kind of on the same page together. So the first key to make key life decisions from Acts chapter 1 is situation assessment. Before you can go forward in making a decision, you're going to need to kind of know where you are and how you got to where you are, and sort of assess what the options are, what, what's on the table, what's not on the table, what are some possible outcomes of different decisions that I'm facing. We want to assess the situation. So the apostles in Acts chapter 1, they're deciding, they, got a, they have a replacement, they have an opening uh, in, their, in their team. So Judas, who was one of the original 12 disciples, has killed himself, and that's a tragic ending to a tragic story about a tragic character from Scripture. And so now there's an opening there that they decide they need to fill, and the Holy Spirit's going to help them. And so they assess their own situation, as we should as well. But then the second key in making key life decisions is then sincere prayer. So the apostles in Acts 1, they're gathered together, really, as we'll see this morning, and then especially next week as we get into Acts chapter 2, is they're just praying for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has instructed them. He ascends into heaven. His final instructions to them are wait for the Holy Spirit so you can receive power to be my witnesses. He says, wait until he comes. So for 10 days, the apostles are waiting and praying for the Holy Spirit to come. And while they are sincerely praying for that, God then reveals this need, this decision that they need to now make and helps to guide them in that decision-making process. And as we discussed last week, for us, sincere prayer is really three quick things. It's first, introspective. So our sincere prayer is more about, God, what are you doing in me? And then what do you want to do through me for others? And then what do you want to do for me? So the decision that we're praying about really comes last in that order. Work in me, work through me, and then work for me is how this really works. It's also consistent. If it's a big-time decision that you're really wrestling with that's really important in your life, 
It's worth praying about repeatedly. It's worth keeping on praying until you get an answer one way or another. So we want to be consistent in our prayer. And then we want to be expectant. Because the apostles, they don't, come to, they don't come to prayer about this and just think, well, maybe God will tell us. Well, maybe he'll come through. They just pray and expect God will answer them. We can be the same way. We're not obligating God to do what we want, how we want, when we want, but sincere prayer that is expectant says, God, I believe that you will lead me and guide me. I'm coming to you in full faith, knowing that you have all power, all authority, and all ability to move in my life the way that you want, so I'm going to seek you for the answers that I know that you will give. So situation assessment and sincere prayer were the first two keys to help us make key life decisions. And here we go with the third one, the new one that we'll look at today first. The third key to make key life decisions is what we're going to call unified wisdom. Unified wisdom. So again, in Acts 1, Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He's given them this instruction, wait in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything until the Holy Spirit appears and gives you power to be a witness, and then he ascends into heaven. So let's pick it up here in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. The very next thing that happens after he ascends is this, Acts 1, 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Uh, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. So there were two Judases in the 12. So this is not Judas Iscariot, it's the other Judas. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. And when he stands up, he assesses the situation that we talked about last week. So this idea here, unified wisdom, is kind of a two-for-one. We're going to break apart both words in this key and look at them separately to see how they work together. So what we see here in Acts 1 is a picture of church unity. It says here, Luke tells us there were at least 120 followers or believers of Jesus gathered here together. There were probably a few more than that. Uh, So the reason he uses that number is because ancient Jewish law uh, demands if you're going to start your own self-governing community, you have to have at least 120 adult males to do that. So there, and there are women listed too, so probably like most biblical accounts, there are 120 adult men in the room and then plus a handful of other women as well. So there's 120 plus in this room. So whether or not they knew what they were doing intentionally or the Holy Spirit just decided, hey, we need to have at least this many, uh, they've got their bases covered here to start this new movement that we're talking about that is the church. But how many of you know we're talking about unity? If you get 120 people in the same room, it can be hard to find unity, can it? It can be maybe impossible. If you get 12 people in the same room, lower by a factor of 10, you get 12 people in the same room, it's going to be hard to find unity in that room. And we know how difficult that is based on just the people that are named, the 11 apostles and Mary and his brothers that are named in here. We know how uh, impossible this might be because here, let's look at these people for just a few minutes here and look at how this unity that they had was so incredible, was so spirit-led. Because all the people in this room, in Acts chapter 1, didn't all have the same political views. (gasps) Shocker. 
right? They didn't all vote the same, okay? And we know that because one of them named Simon is given this title, Simon the Zealot. So the Zealots were a, a sect of Jews who were very militant in their belief of the Old Testament scriptures. So uh, Simon here may, we don't know a lot about him, but it's possible based on this moniker that he gets, it's possible that the reason he was attracted to Jesus because maybe he thought this guy is a revolutionary like me. If he really is the Messiah and the Messiah is going to come and bring his kingdom on earth, if Jesus keeps preaching about the kingdom of heaven is like this, bring it in, in the model prayer, your will on earth as it is in heaven, like Simon's going to be attracted to that kind of language as a zealot. He's like, okay, we now have a leader for our militia to literally overthrow the government, okay? I'm not going to say anything. I have a joke in my head that was, would be really funny, but I'm not going to say it. Thank you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> You probably know what I'm going to say, all right? So Simon the Zealot is here in this room. He is, a, he is a different kind of guy. He's got a different kind of mindset about what Jesus, who Jesus probably was. But he's here, and they're unified with him. He's unified with them. All of the people that are listed here have their own past that so they have to deal with, their own baggage, uh, their, their own levels of maturity. Let me give you some examples throughout the Gospels here for just a minute. So especially James and John, two brothers that are there, uh, in Mark chapter 10, they, they ask Jesus a, a question, and they say, Jesus, we have a request from you, okay? Uh, when you go to your kingdom, Jesus, can one of us sit on your right hand and one sit on your left hand? They want to be his number two guys, you know? And Jesus kind of doesn't answer their request. He kind of says, that's not, that's, you're missing the point. That's not what I'm about. And then later in, in Matthew, so that's in uh, Mark 10, in Matthew 20, the way that Matthew records this section is either one of two we can look at one of two ways so in matthew 20 james and john's mother approaches jesus with this question so definitely mama's boys we know this clearly okay they get their mom to do their dirty work for them so you can look at this one of two ways either matthew and mark who really is peter his point of view they remember this differently or what's very possible is they ask him first he shuts them down then they get their mom to ask him later on the same question he's not going to turn her down she's a sweet old lady they're not he's not going to say no to her but he does say no to her he says again they're not prepared you don't know what you're asking really and they're not prepared even if i let them do that they can't hang they can't handle that so there's this maturity that they're working on there's these there's these issues and baggage that these men in this room have in Luke chapter 9, all of the disciples sort of ask Jesus this question. They say, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Like they're, they're in it for themselves still at this point. They're not thinking really about the people or about who Jesus really is. Like they're in it for them. Who's the greatest? Can we be the greatest? And what does Jesus do? He brings a child into the group and he says, if you want to be the greatest, you got to be like a child. Simple faith, simple belief. I'm not looking for the most uh, intelligent follower. I'm not looking. I'm just looking for someone who will believe. Okay, and that kind of shuts them up for a minute. But then in the same chapter, Luke 9, later on, they, they come and they tattletale on somebody. They're like, Jesus, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. There's this guy who's not in our inner circle group, and he's casting out demons. And Jesus is like, okay. And they're like, hey, stop, can you put a stop to that? He's not one of us. He can't be doing that. And Jesus says, whoever is not against me is for me. It's more than just you 12. I know that's hard for you guys to figure out. You're all in it for you, but that's not the point. So Jesus has to set these guys straight over and over and over again. They lack a lot of maturity in different ways, yet here we find that they're unified. Look at, and look at who's running the meeting for a second. Peter is running this meeting. He's taken charge. He's now, for whatever reason, put himself in control of this group of people. And 
Everyone in the room, probably, when he gets up to talk, is thinking, wait a second, weren't you the one just a few weeks ago that denied even knowing Jesus several times? In his greatest moment of need, three times you're, you're spotted as one of his followers, and all three times you deny even knowing Jesus? Like, who put you in charge of this business meeting? Like, that, that's probably going through their minds, but yet what we see here is unity. Despite all these differences, there's unity. And then we talked about James and John and Peter, but Peter and John, they have a kind of a rivalry that they've had for a while. And we know this because in John chapter 20, after Jesus rises from the dead, uh, the women at the tomb come back and tell the disciples, he's alive, he's risen, the tomb is empty. So John, who's writing about himself and Peter here, okay, he puts these, I love these little things that John puts in there. He's very real with his writing, okay? So he says, Peter and John rush to the tomb, but guess who got there first? John, right? <laughs> Remember those commercials from the late 80s, the Spike Lee, Michael Jordan? It's got to be the shoes, you know, or did you, maybe if you were my age or whatever, you had the pumps, you know, you know, they didn't do anything. They, they had no purpose. They just made you pay an extra 15 bucks because they had a cool little pump on the, on the tongue, right? I don't know, maybe John had his pumps, sandals on that day. He got there first, but he lets us know, John beat Peter. Take that, Peter, right? So they have a rivalry, John chapter 21, Peter and Jesus have a moment after the resurrection where basically Jesus does sort of put Peter in charge. That's why Peter kind of feels like, okay, I'm going to run this meeting in Acts 1 because me and Jesus have already talked about this. But they're talking, and one thing Jesus does with Peter is he basically predicts, in a way, Peter's death. He's saying, hey, there's going to be a time where you're going to be old, have to be led around, and you're going to be blind, and it's just not going to be a good ending to your life. Peter's response to that is to look over at John and say, well, what about him? It's like, really? Like, you're having a moment with Jesus here. You could maybe ask him some other questions, but your concern is about your rival. Your concern is about Jesus' favorite, John. You're like, yeah, that's your concern. And Jesus says, what does it matter to you if he lives till I come back? Just follow me, right? So there's all kinds of different people in the room with all sorts of different worldviews, thoughts, and baggage. And there are people in the room that are named here that have different levels of relationship with Jesus. Think about it. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is here in Acts 1 in the upper room. So she, of all people, is going to have a very close relationship with Jesus. She birthed the Son of God. She raised the Son of God. So she has a very intimate relationship. She's the first person to ever know who Jesus really was before he was born. The angel came and told her, you're pregnant with God's Son. So they have a special bond. The brothers of Jesus are here. Now, they're unique because in John chapter 7, it says explicitly, the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him. And I can't blame them. Can you blame them? You got any siblings at home? You grew up with siblings? Imagine one of them all of a sudden saying, I'm God. Are you just going to bow down and worship your sibling? No, you're not. You're going to not believe them, just like the brothers of Jesus. So I can't blame them at all. But guess what? They're here in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 as believers in Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus did rise from the dead, then they believed. The same reason anyone who has ever believed in Jesus believes in him. Because we believe that he did physically, literally, bodily rise from the dead. So they were convinced at some point in Jesus, they were there, but they had different levels of relationship in this 
room. However, despite these differences, these disagreements, these people who make up the church found unity. And they found it in Jesus. Not in a faith statement that they made, not in a doctrinal belief that they held to, not in their background of religion that would have been somewhat similar, yet we've seen variations of it. No, their unity was in Jesus and him alone. That was the unifying factor for this diverse group of people. And as Christians, if you're a Christian, we need this kind of unity in the church. We need to find unity in the same way and in the same person that they did in Jesus. Again, not in a doctrinal statement, not in a religious belief, not in the name of a church, not in a denomination, but in Jesus. He is the unifying factor. Because Jesus knew that his followers, he knew his followers weren't all the same. He knew they would differ. He knew they disagreed. He knew that they had different backgrounds and ways of thinking and living. But for his followers, uh, for Jesus' followers, unity wasn't an option for them. Here's what happens in John 13, just before he's crucified, the night before he's crucified, at the la- during the Last Supper, he gives them this command. John 13, 34, 35. Jesus speaking here says, so now I'm giving you a new suggestion. It's not what he says. Giving you a new idea. Let's kick it around. Let's see. No, no. I'm giving you a new command. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And here's the key. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus made unity a a must for his followers. And the church today desperately needs unity. Now, there can be differing opinions and views on certain things. That's going to happen, okay? Uh, there can be, you're going to have different backgrounds, styles, preferences, even in this room. We, we check all those boxes, okay? We do. But I love about our church is that we do have a sense of unity here. Like This is a family uh, feel that we have. We genuinely love one another, care for one another, check up on one another, right? That, that's what the church should be. And my prayer is that even as we continue to, to grow and flourish, that we'll continue in that spirit of unity. And that then we can be kind of what this church was. Again, Jesus says, that's how people are going to know that you're my followers. Not because you give in the offering, not because you sing at church, not because you go to church, not because you have a Bible, read a Bible, own it, but because you love other Christians because we're unified. So may that continue to be a hallmark of who we are because it's the the differentiating factor for followers of Jesus. But personally, so we're talking about key life decisions and we haven't really talked about that yet, but here we go. Personally, as you're facing key life decisions in your life, my encouragement as we follow the model in Acts 1 is to bring people into your life to bring that support system for you, right? that unifying force in your life. And we want to make sure that they're united under Jesus. So here's my thing. Even if you're not a Christian or you're not sure about Christianity or you're opposed to Christianity, the best thing that you can do is to bring strong Christians into your decision-making process. Because they don't have to think exactly like you to love you. They're Christians, right? They, they don't have to care about the other things. They're going to pray for God's perfect will for your life, right? So even if you're not a person of faith, the more, more people of faith you can bring in, that's going to make your decision-making process that much 
better. That's my, that's my personal belief on that. Because they'll sincerely pray for you, they'll unite around God's best for you because there's a command of unity in the life of a Christian. But here's the other thing about unity before we move on to the wisdom part, and that is that there's not just a command of unity, but there's also a blessing of unity. Psalm 133 says this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, who's the, the high priest, uh, the first high priest, Moses' brother, running down the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there, in unity, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So there is a command for unity, yes, but there's also a blessing that comes along with it that we see here. You think about, again, on the Super Bowl, there are two kinds of, two kinds of teams in sports. There are teams that have locker room problems, and there are teams that do not. Typically, teams with locker room problems don't win as much. They don't like each other. Um, he's making more money than me. It's not fair. Or, you know, we, we disagree on political issues, so I don't even want to be on the same field as this guy. Like, there are teams that have stuff. They typically, there are exceptions, but typically they don't win very often. And the more that they lose, the worse the locker room gets. It's just a spiral out of control thing. On the other hand, you have teams that love each other. They love playing together. They have so much fun like the Chiefs. You can see they like each other. They hang out in the offseason. They train in the offseason. They don't have to, but they want to. They like playing video games together. They have things in common. Even if they don't have things in common, they just love each other. You can tell. I'd say that, I mean, of course, they have immense talent, but you, that helps. When I like you, I can trust you. I can trust that if I throw the ball, you're probably going to catch it because I trust you, I like you, we mesh together, we want to win together, we want to we play for each other, we want to play for our coach. We wanna, that's, that's what the church really can be here. That, that the more that we have this unity, there can be a blessing on that. And it's true in your life. When you make these key life decisions and you have people around you that are, that are unified for a common purpose, I think that can help God, the Holy Spirit, lead you where he wants you to go even easier. You have more sets of eyes that really want the best for you. They're not looking for you to trip up. They're not looking to, uh, man, if they slip down, then I'll be better than them again. Or, you know, if they get laid off, then I'll make more than them now or whatever. Like, no, the more people that we have unified around us, the better our decision-making process will typically go. And as a church, it's the same way. God can better lead us in, uh, in the blessing that he has for us as we continue to be unified together. But then it's not, just, it's not just unity, right? It's not just that anyone's involved in your decision-making process. It's, that it's unified wisdom. So these go together. So it's people that you can trust that you bring in to your life. People that you should trust. People that have some kind of a track record of wisdom in their life that you then will trust their input. You'll take their advice because they have a track record to back up what they're saying. They're not just full of hot air. It's not like, you know, your broke uncle who's giving you, you know, financial advice. You can just say whatever he says. Do the opposite. I guess you could do it that way. Um, but we're talking about unified wisdom here. We need wisdom around us in our key life decisions. Proverbs 28, 26 says, Those who trust their own insight are foolish. But anyone who walks in wisdom is safe. And a couple more Proverbs here to back that up is really the more the merrier. The more unified wisdom you impart into your life, the better. 
Proverbs eleven fourteen. Without wise leadership, a nation falls. There is safety in having many advisors. Proverbs fifteen twenty two. Plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. Unified wisdom is the key here. And so here's what a few things about that quickly. It's not bringing in yes men into your life. That's not unified wisdom. Not just people who would tell you what you want to hear all the time. We need to bring in, unified wisdom means I'll bring in people who sometimes will butt heads with me to make me think longer before I pull the trigger on that decision. I need that. You need that. I need people who, who can see things a little bit differently than me sometimes so that I can have a more 360-degree view of this decision that I'm going to make. I need that. You need that. I need people who will seek God on my behalf for me, unified wisdom. So not just yes men, but that, that's really the opposite of that. And another part of that is they don't have to be older than you are. And they can be because age does equal wisdom in many cases, whether for good or bad. But it doesn't always have to be that way. They can be the same age as you. They can be younger than you. Again, we're looking for someone with a track record of wisdom working in their life. A track record of someone who really hones into what God wants. I want, that. I want those people in my unified wisdom, in that circle. That's, that's who I want. And it's okay to look at certain people from time to time and think, should I listen to that person? It's okay. You're not like undercutting that person. You're not saying that they're terrible. You're not saying they're evil. But that's part of that wisdom is, okay, are they playing a game here? Do they really have my best interest at, at heart? Like if you sense something, pray about that, okay? And maybe you need to push them out a rung from your inner circle. That's unified wisdom. A key here is open dialogue with these people. Ask them questions, get their input, get their experience, get, get, glean from the advice of that unified wisdom around you. We should want this, really, really what I would call is compounded unified wisdom, as much as I can over and over and over to help us make key life decisions. That's what this 120 is in Acts chapter 1. They're together, they're unified, and they're seeking God's will together. It's unified wisdom. And then the fourth, the fourth and final key, this might seem obvious, but it's a big one, okay? The fourth and final key to help us make key life decisions is just simply a pulled trigger. Eventually, you have to just make a decision. Eventually, you've got to just pull the trigger. So this group here in Acts 1, they've gathered, they've prayed, they've talked, they've nominated two men as their options and here's what they do. Acts 1, verse 26. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. So they gathered, they prayed, they debated, they nominated two men, and then they had to make a vote. They had to decide. They couldn't just wait and wait and not, well, let's not do it after all. Or no, let's get these other three. Can't. No, no, no. We got the final two. Choose. We got the final two options. Vote. Make a decision. So that's what they do. And it says here that they cast lots. Now that's interesting. Let's look at that for just a second. Basically what that is, is they just put two names in a hat, and then they just had somebody pull one out. That's basically what that means. It means the same thing that you would think it means today. And that might seem like, mm, that's not a great idea. That's not very spiritual, but it's actually in Scripture. Proverbs 16.33 says this, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. 
Now, this does not mean go to the casino and play craps today. <laughs> well, Proverbs 16.33 says, you know, that's not, that's not what's going on here, okay? This method might seem random to us, but to them in this setting, it was a belief in the sovereignty of God. We've prayed as long as we're going to pray. We've talked as long as we're going to talk. We've got it down to two options. They're both good options. And so we're going to let God decide in this method that is time and true tested. What is interesting, though, is this is used a few other times in Scripture in the culture, but this is just before the Holy Spirit finally comes in Acts 2, and we never see this method used again. So it's almost like the Holy Spirit gave them this method for a while, but then when he came, it's like, now I'm going to directly guide your life. Now I'm going to personally lead you in these decisions. You don't need to roll the dice, you don't need to, you know, spin a wheel. You don't have to do, get on an app and make a choice. Like, you, you can trust me now directly because I've come to the earth to guide you in this way. So that's an interesting idea that they ne- this, this is the last time that this method's ever used. And really what it comes down to, I said a second ago for us, is maybe your decision, you have two or three options, and they're all good. Like you've weighed the options, you've thought through what's going to happen, you've counted the, the pros and cons, and you're like, okay, there's really no bad answer. So then what do you do? You just pull the trigger. You do the, the one that you're going to do because there's no bad options here. Maybe that's what that means in your life. So you just choose one, and the key here is you, ch- you make the choice, you pull the trigger, and you trust God with the results. And that might sound easy to some, and it might sound frightening <laughs> to some. You mean just pull the trigger and trust God? This is my life we're talking about. This is an important thing I'm facing. I'm just, I mean, that, that seems really flippant just to say, make a choice and trust God. Again, I'm not saying it. It's in Acts 1. That's what they did. They made the decision. They trusted God, and it ended up working out. But here's, here's why that actually works. We'll do a, a recap of all four at the end in a few minutes. But this is why all four of these keys work together. Because if you've assessed the situation completely, and you've prayed sincerely, and you've gathered unified wisdom around you, then you can feel more confident in pulling the trigger. That's why they work. That's, a, that's how it worked here in Acts 1. That's the same way it works for us. If you live your life consistently in this way with these keys, then the Holy Spirit will give you a sense of what to do. This can describe your life. Let's look at this, Ephesians 5, uh, the beginning and then sort of near the end of chapter 5 here to see how this works in our lives. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ, He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Now skip down to verse 10, Ephesians 5, verse 10. Then in light of that, Paul says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. And then verse 17, Paul says, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Here in Ephesians 5, we see the same sort of key descriptions that we see in Acts 1. Believe it or not, you can determine what pleases the Lord. Believe it or not, you can understand the Lord's will for you. Paul says we can right here. Now, is it still scary to consider this decision, even in light of that? Yes. Will we still worry sometimes about these decisions, even though we know God's got it? Yes, we're human. We're going to worry. 
are we going to overthink and second guess sometimes, even after we've pulled the trigger? Oh, was that was the best thing to do? Well, too late, you know. But really, ultimately, if we followed these keys, the Holy Spirit then will do the rest. He'll direct, he'll lead, he'll guide, he'll bring you to that determined destination. Think about this for a second. For these disciples in Acts 1, this is the first decision they've ever made on their own, right? Until this point, Jesus literally lived with them every day. He told them where to go, what to do, what to say, probably what to eat, what to wear. Like he, he was their mom for three years, okay? So they had never done anything without him telling them not just when or but every detail he, he mapped out for them. Now they're on their own, but they're not, right? They're not. The Holy Spirit, even though he hasn't come yet fully, he's still guiding this decision-making process for them, and they know that. So they can feel confident that as we follow these keys, we're going to roll the dice, make a choice, and move on. So they, they can do that, and we can do that too. It's a daily, regular journey with Jesus. That's what Ephesians is, right? Imitate God in everything you do. Then you can know the Lord's will. It will prepare us, a regular daily journey with Jesus will prepare us for these big key life decisions. Here's another way to phrase that, to give you something to think about this week. If you're already doing what God does, you'll become more sensitive to what God wants you to do. If you're already doing what God does, you'll become more sensitive to what God wants you to do. Ephesians 5, imitate God in all you do. That's what that is. Now, it's not perfect. We are flawed. We're going to mess up, but the Holy Spirit can fill those gaps in, right? He can, he can beep, 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 we're getting off course. We're getting, we're backing up too far, you know, to the other car. He's going to let, oh, stop, 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 you know? He does that. But if I'm following the way of Jesus on a regular basis, that will help me when these big decisions, these key life decisions come. Let me rephrase this in a couple of different ways. If you don't like that one, here's another option for you, I guess. Here's two more. The same idea, just phrased a little bit differently. As you live the way of Jesus generally, you can more easily be led by the Holy Spirit specifically. So I'm living my life every day trying to follow the way of Jesus, trying to do what I think he wants me to do. Then when this big thing comes up, I don't have to then be a different person now. I don't have to then go to what plan B now, right? Because I'm already living in the way of Jesus. So when this big thing comes, I'm more prepared to be led by the Holy Spirit. Another way to phrase the same idea is if you do what you know, he will show you where to go. Maybe you like that one better. I like the first one the best. That's why I put it on the screen. But anyway, we have differences of opinion in the room, right? We can still be unified. So um, Romans 12, verse 2 shows us the same idea, but it shows us two sides of this reality. So let's look at this just for a second. Romans 12, 2. Paul writing here says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. There's two parts here. So the behavior of the world, Paul says, don't do that. If you're looking at key life decisions, don't look as a guide to the culture around you because they are messed up. They are confused. They are lost. They are frustrated. I don't want that for you, so don't be like that. Because the culture around us says, I want to do what I want to do. The culture around me says, I don't want God's input. <laughs> I don't even want anybody else's input. I'm the master of my own life. I'm going to do what I want. 
and will refuse wise counsel, which leads to a sad, miserable, disappointing life. Instead, Paul says, allow God to transform the way you think. That's what that sincere prayer is. Even in assessing the situation, the very first key, allow God to redo how you even do that process. Allow him to support you by unified wisdom. And then he says, you will learn to know God's will. So it is true, if you're already doing what God does, you'll become more sensitive to what God wants you to do. So the apostles, as we saw, they eventually had to pull the trigger. They had to make a decision, and then they had to trust God with it. So as we close, let me read one more scripture. It's another proverb. A lot of proverbs today. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you probably know this scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. That's unified wisdom. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. There was a story of a little boy who asked his grandfather uh, one time. He said, Grandpa, what is the wind? Don't you love when little kids ask questions like that? Grandpa, what is the wind? And the grandfather says, I can't explain the wind to you, but I can teach you how to raise the sail. That's what this is. When it's time to make a key decision, you may not always know which direction the wind is going to take you, but will you raise the sail? You may not always know when or how or why God's going to work in your life. He might, like we talked about last week, he might surprise you with something. You may have to wait longer than you thought. You may go off, you think you're going off course, but no, no, no. Our responsibility is not to control the wind. So we can't do that. All we can do with our lives is raise the sail and say, Holy Spirit, blow my life wherever you want it to go. Do in me whatever you want to do. Have me approach people. Have me, you know, stretch out of my comfort zone. I'm giving you control of my life, of my key decisions. I'm raising the sails of my life. So I don't know what key decision you're facing or decisions that you're facing. Maybe they're relational. Maybe they're financial decisions. Maybe you've got a big career choice. Maybe you literally have a life and death situation on your hands. It's crucial that you get this right. And so I believe that these four keys that we've looked at the last couple of weeks will help us to make the best key life decisions. As we allow the Holy Spirit to help us assess the situation, to really see what's going on as clearly as we can, and then to sincerely pray about what God might want to do in this situation, in my life, for others as we get these people around us to create unified wisdom, right? Not an echo chamber of our own ideas, not yes men to tell us what we want to hear, but unified wisdom. And then may we then with confidence, or what I, I would say with faith, pull the trigger. I believe that as we do that, whatever the key decision is, the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us where he wants us to go. So may the posture of our lives be, God, I want to live your way and I trust you with my life. Let's pray. God, may that last statement be our prayer. God, I, I want to live your way, and I trust you with my life. That's what these keys have been all about all along. And so as we talked about these last two today, God, my prayer is that you would bring people of unified wisdom into our lives direct us into their path, 
Maybe we have to go get them and ask them to be involved in this decision. Or maybe they're just going to come to us. However that is, God, would you direct us to those people? Would you direct them to us? We need unified wisdom in our lives. We want to hear your voice clearly, and so there are times where we just can't. So we need others around us to help hear your voice clearly. Help give guidance and wisdom along with the the power of the Holy Spirit to help guide us in these decisions. May you bring these people across our paths to create unified wisdom. And then God, would you just give us the faith to when it's time to pull the trigger? Just give us the courage to make that decision. And then may we trust you with the results of that. We're not going to bat a thousand We're not going to always get it right, but Holy Spirit, would you help to maybe cover our imperfections a bit? Would you maybe be kind of a bumper uh, on, on the alley of our life as we roll this bowling ball down toward the pins? Would you maybe cover us in those ways where we are not perfect and we will mishear, we will misspeak, we will make mistakes? That's where your grace comes in. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. So we pray that as we pull the trigger, that you would just be sovereign over these key life decisions. May we walk the way of Jesus, and may we trust you in our decisions in our life. That's our prayer. Simple prayer, but profound prayer. Simple prayer, but life-changing prayer. Help us to follow this pattern of Acts 1 so that we, through your help and guidance, can make the best key life decisions. God, I thank you and praise you for all those here today. I pray that you would lead them and guide them, not just today, but this week and every day of their lives. Bring us back next time ready for more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.